all day. <laughs> Langsam kommt der Winter, dann kommt der gewisse Tag. Da haltet sich die Angst mit, da freit genau die Wog. Wer trotzdem aus dem Haus geht, begibt sich in Gefahr. Doch das ist gut, der Reiz dabei und alle schreien im Korn. Krampel, Besenstühl, beten kann ich eh nicht für Auwe, Auwe. Und morgen tut der Hintern wie Artikel unter Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast, I'm Craig Kringle. I need to come clean. In the past, I've been too hard on Krampus. I think I've even made fun of him a couple times, saying he's not really all that weird anymore. I mean, after Funko Pops and movies and showing up on TV, he's just kind of become part of the season. And I, of course, I wanted to be all underground and indie and hipster with my Christmas knowledge. But that's not fair to him. Krampus has just been living his best life. And right now, that means enjoying a bit of celebrity. It's also not fair because it means I was ignoring a lot of background connected to Krampus that definitely makes his, what, lineage a whole lot weirder than I realized. Fact is, I was letting the modern understanding of Krampus blind me to how he actually lives out there in the grand collective unconscious. Krampus is directly related to whole lines of history and folklore that I've only barely alluded to on this show, so it's time to fix that. So we've already talked about Christmas witches this year with Benito, and of course we talked about Perkta, but it's really important to recognize that she's not just an isolated figure who kind of pops up now and then in European traditions. The more you learn, the more you start to realize that she's possibly even more influential and widespread than Krampus is. And frankly, she may be where Krampus comes from. I wouldn't be surprised if we started hearing more and more about her, in fact, but with Perkta come some other figures that are kind of like Krampus, Kinda like goblins or fairies, really depends on which specific region's folklore you're talking about. They're called the Perchten, and it's actually pretty hard to nail down what they are, or supposed to be, or anything really settled about them at all. Luckily, last year when I talked to Al Reidenauer about Krampus, he said he'd be happy to talk more, so that's what we're going to do. Al Reidenauer, if you don't remember, is the officially designated Krampus expert as designated by me at least, because his book The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas is, to my mind, the best resource on Krampus in English, and far as I can tell, in any language. He's done the most work collecting what writing there is on Krampus and the Krampus folklore through European history, and I believe he's also done the most field work of actually traveling to many German and Austrian towns and festivals where Krampus runs are still going on or have started up again. At this point, I'm pretty sure that anyone else who wants to write about Krampus or say anything about him is basically just adding footnotes to Al's book. And the book is also, frankly, just a beautiful thing to have. The pictures and the layout are really fun if you just want to sort of flip through and see examples of different costumes and different historical images. But if you also want to go step by step through the history, you can do that too. It really is a treasure of a book. Anyway, a good chunk of it is actually about these kind of pseudo-Krampus, pseudo-Goblin-y creatures called Perchten. In some cases, they seem indistinguishable from Krampus, and in other cases, they're more like happy little fairies. But it's a whole part of the same families of folklore that birthed everyone's favorite Christmas demon. So, if you really want to know about Krampus, you really need to know about the Perchten. We're also in luck because Reidenauer has his own podcast called Bone and Sickle, where he talks about not just Christmassy monsters, but all kinds of dark and foreboding folklore. This is all definitely on the sort of horror end of things, and he does a great job of adding a whole like spooky haunted house library dimension to his show. It's really fun, especially because he has shows about Krampus and Perchta and the Perchten and the Wild Hunt, which we'll talk about, and even the latest one, at least 
for what I'm putting this show out today is all about how this kind of stuff showed up in the United States. And it's more about Bell Snickle, who is on my list to talk about for next year. But if you're really interested in the darker sides of gift givers and Krampus type Christmas monsters, Bone and Sickle is absolutely the show for you. So now that I've tried to convince you to go listen to a different show, hopefully you'll keep listening to me and Al talk about the Perkton. So first, maybe let's just start with the Perkton themselves. And so if there are people who don't know what they are, what are the Perkton? Well, uh, people may think they know what they are without knowing, too, because uh, it's, it's a little hard to say, actually, when you look at the history. <laughs> so uh, the the uh, Perkton that people are, are most likely to be familiar with are um, look very much like the Krampus. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that is a sort of later evolution of the character. Um, not to dip back too much into the old Krampus episode, but the Krampus himself uh, only started appearing in the way we know him with the horns and the fur in the late eighteen in the late eighteen uh, hundreds. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so those Krampus runs were organized, and uh, sometime um, I think the popularity of the Krampus phenomenon in Europe. Uh, gave new life to this thing that's called a Pirsten run or a Pirsten Lauf. And uh, those are now populated by people wearing costumes that are pretty much identical to the Krampus costume. Um, they also have horns. They also have fur. They have the the masks that usually, you know, the features were sort of the same. Mm-hmm. And they also wear the bells that the traditional Krampus wears. Um, sometimes you'll hear people saying that the Persian can have multiple horns. And the Krampus is supposed to only have two. But that's kind of a regional thing. It's a, it's a rule that people made up to sound smart, but it doesn't really apply <laughs> everywhere. Gotcha. As, as most, most good rules go. Probably um, something I've said somewhere. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we all, <laughs> at some point you, well, I, I was, uh, I, I had a, one of my sources for the Krampus book was very insistent on this. He comes from a very traditional area and his Krampus has had more than two horns. So I think the idea uh, gotcha. that Krampus has two horns is kind of based on those, uh, the, the Krampus postcards where you see a kind of a sort of different, species of Krampus, even than yeah. the ones that run around on the streets. Yeah. So there are uh, Pershton runs too, and they can be as big or they can be as big as the Krampus runs. The Pershton runs are what happen after after the Krampus runs, The since the Krampus is traditionally associated with December 5th and 6th. Um, after that, anything furry with horns running in the streets in Germany and Austria will be a uh, Pershton. So the, <laughs> that's the singular of uh, Pershton, by the way. So anyway, these um, this idea that the Pershton look like um, the Krampus is, as you said, it's it's fairly recent. Um, mm-hmm. They've kind of un- undergone the same process as the Krampus, where they weren't kind of visually defined for a while. There would be different regional looks for somebody who would call himself a, a Pershton. But let's see. Before I start focusing too much on the the costumed manifestation. I should talk more about the the mythology and sure, folklore. Sure. So a lot, a lot of these things begin as if you said the boogeyman, you know, people would all not agree what that thing looks like, mm-hmm. and that was, was yeah. the case with the Krampus and also with the Persian. So a lot of different traditions in different regions evolved 
when we had these door to door customs, when it was that is when it was more than just a story that you would tell. That those uh, different door to door customs evolved differently in different places. Yeah. So perst, um, a, a perst is um, the word itself. It comes from a, a Bavarian word, Bavarian, Bavarian, like, you know, dialect of German, um, a Bavarian word which uh, used for the night of Epiphany. Uh, epiphanies for people who didn't go to Catholic school or uh, had that <laughs> background. Epiphany is the night that the uh, Magi. In America, it's more maybe, especially whether you have any Latin American populations, it's Three Kings Night. So that's uh, January sixth. That's when the uh, the Magi or the wise men supposedly visited uh, the holy couple and brought their gifts to the Christ Child. Um, so that's January sixth, and the Persian were um, especially associated with the night before. Um, oh, the word itself, by the way, is it doesn't sound anything like epiphany, which is a Greek word. In in the in the uh, I don't have it in front of me now. It's a strange spelling, but in the in the Bavarian, it's it means the shining night, uh, the the night of uh, shining forth or uh, an an appearance. Mm. A, a shining forth could be also sort of translated as an appearance in that gotcha. context. Yeah. So uh, so that's where the word comes. This weird word comes from. Even before there was talk about the uh, Persian, there was a lady Persh, a Miss uh, 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 Frau Persh, Persta, mm-hmm. Persta, Persta. They kind of the German does different things with those final, uh, yeah, yeah, final yeah, vowels. Yeah. So mm-hmm. she came before the Persian were spoken about collectively, and she was uh, no. Actually, there's more late, recent scholarship that suggests there's all sorts of ideas even about her, who is the origin of all of this. Um, some people say that she really was just a uh, embodiment of a sort of figurehead or a sort of uh, embodiment of the holiday itself of Epiphany with whatever customs were practiced. Oh, interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Just the way, you know, Father Christmas is an embodiment yeah. of Christmas. So Lady Epiphany, you, you could interpret her name to mean that. Yeah. Because uh, the, the word also could mean shining forth. A lot of people have also said she is a uh, Germanic goddess, goddess of light, or that she's the shining one. I, mm. I don't believe that's actually correct. Um, that's not really supported by any of the old writing about the character. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say it does kind of sound like Saint Lucy, but right, and that's that she is. Yeah, she is. So that's uh, December twelfth, uh, uh, I think. Anyway, they are different. Uh, like, you know, sort of some crossover. I think the more the bigger problem I have with that almost is that calling her. Uh, there's a tendency to call things gods and goddesses that were not right. They, they were spirit. Yeah. You know, local spirits or spirits that have dominion over a certain day, a certain task, a certain people, a certain occupation. Yeah. Occupation. You know, if we you need to sort of get back into that a little more. Uh, animistic mindset yeah so, yeah but not like a, a greek god or or a right. certainly not a christian god kind of thing yeah. right well certainly yeah. not like a christian god more like a local just a, a spirit of the a spirit of, a, of the forest or of a mm-hmm. particular forest or a particular spring or you know waterfall fall, lake so uh anyway so frau peshta um was uh, an embodiment at the holiday and um there's some other theories, but I didn't, they're not really mainstream, so we won't, won't get into that. Hmm. But because um, there, there were customs that ran through autumn, f- through the beginning of winter, which in Europe and Germany was uh, November 11th all the way through uh, through Carnival, the end of Carnival. But uh, 
and they involve uh, costuming and going door to door. Um, Epiphany, technically, January 6th, which we should also note is exactly a month after uh, December 6th, uh, Krampus, uh, St. Nicholas Day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is all one season of, of, um, of uh, people going door to door in costumes. Uh, it's actually very legitimate to compare uh, these costumes to uh, our Halloween, mm-hmm. which comes from the Celtic Halloween. And, and in that in Celtic tradition, of course, that was the beginning of, of their year in the winter. Just it's these, there's a lot of sort of a, there's sort of a calendrical slide between. Yeah. Oh yeah. Halloween and New Year's and even up into Carnival, it's all kind of one. I mean, the old medieval church treated, you know, it was, we talk about the days of Christmas. Christmas is very much a period. There was the day of the nativity, the 25th. Yeah. The whole period was kind of one thing and, and it had customs that would occur earlier in that period and late in, you know, early December and late fall could, could also be transferred over to other holidays later. Yeah. So anyway, so this uh, Frau Pirsta character became associated uh, with other door-to-door cost, uh, customs, and uh, these you can also compare to. There's, you know, we have these. In, there's, they happen in Slavic countries, and, and and you know, in the UK we have mummers. Um, so it's a uh, this in the door-to-door visiting customs, uh, house visit customs. There often you find this lots of places where the people that visit are supposed to are in disguise and. Uh, they're uh, they're given gifts by the homeowners, and um, in return, what they're they're bringing uh, they're bringing a blessing upon the house, um, and uh, they can also, if, of course, if you don't give them, it's, it's trick or treating. If you don't, there's yeah. trick or treats. So if you <laughs> if you don't give them a, a, a food or booze or you know sweets, whatever you're handing out, um, then your house isn't blessed. Um, yeah. And because they were disguised, there's a certain kind of ominous quality to them. Um, the disguises, um, I think, so So we had these customs going on around all the way, you know, on Epiphany and through Epiphany in certain regions. And then, so these costumed characters that came out of the night were, became, were kind of uh, associated with Frau Pirsten, and they became, started, people would call them Pirsten. Pirsten. Okay. So that, that's like, that's one explanation. And then there are, the thing is with all of these traditions, there are different uh, sort of streams that feed into the big mm-hmm. river. So uh, that, that would be one. So you have these door-to-door house visiting customs and uh, you have the uh, religious Christian holiday and that embodiment. And then the, there's another, there's a whole other, um, there's a whole other stream. And I feel like I'm talking nonstop. I perhaps you would like to interject some questions. Oh, no, no, this is, this is great. There are a lot of <laughs> threads that you're trying to weave together and they don't necessarily go in one single yeah, story. People, yeah. It's whenever you look for the origins of something, people like to get little just so stories with one, with one, you know, one reason that they, mm-hmm. the thing is what it is. And usually there's lots of, there's especially with folkloric traditions. Usually there's lots of things feeding oh, together yeah. from, you know, different people from different regions bringing in different aspects of the of the tradition. Oh yeah, so, no, that's one thing I love about like Santa Claus history because there's yeah there's, there is no origin. <laughs> there are just many that, different origins all the time. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. And it's the one of my pet peeves is always been hearing people <laughs> declare that Coca Cola invented Santa Claus. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Sort of the, that's sort of the worst of that way of looking at things. Yeah. So anyway, so we have so we have these customs where people are going door to door, asking for uh, favors in, in exchange for a, a house blessing, 
And uh, and then we also have the myth of the wild hunt, which I, I have you talked about that on your show? This is fun that you bring that up because it's that's something that I've started to see recognized more and more often. That is a lot of the holiday traditions that we have mention the wild hunt it definitely i mean because the krampus grows out of the pershton tradition the uh you know it even it has to do with the krampus um and it has to do with the pershton and and it has to do with the swedish christmas witches who were you know are re- also definitely related to the frau pershton character i would, would imagine um so i'm getting a bit ahead of myself um so this the wild hunt you find the myth it's this myth in germany and france and england um in this in Scandinavia too, absolutely in Scandinavia. Not so much as you go further south in Europe, but all of all of those countries. Um, and it's a uh, p- procession of spirits that's seen at night and during the winter season. Uh, they usually they describe it as being in the clouds in the sky. It can mm-hmm. be it can move all over the ground. Uh, I actually, a lot of stories will have the figures walking or riding over the ground, but not quite on the ground. They'll be sort of hovering or yeah, yeah. ten feet over the ground. So there's this ghostly procession that passes through towns and villages and particularly more like desolate, far off places uh, in the winter season. And there are certain nights particularly associated with it. And the night of Epiphany was associated with the, with the wild hunt. Everybody thinks there's some different aspects of it too. So, so one name is the wild hunt because uh, it would be imagined as a series, uh, like a, a, a posse of horsemen riding through the skies with uh, <clears throat> with their hunting dogs. And a lot of this was described in terms of sound. Uh, lot, sometimes, often the I mean, in stories, it would often often just be the sort of rushing of the the sound of the hunters rushing through. Uh, so the barking of dogs and the, gotcha. the clomping of the hoofs and the yells yells and horns of the hunters. Um, and then, you know, some anthropologists like to say this was uh, inspired by the, you know, just winter winds tearing over the landscape, which you know, yeah. is certainly possible. So in one in one way of imagining this procession is uh, hunters also. Uh, and I think an older way of thinking of it was uh, just uh, spirits of the dead. So this is where this is where uh, some of the uh, witchy stuff comes in. Um mm-hmm. So the pagans, so just as the Celts believe that the dead return on Halloween, uh, a little later uh, on the continent, the dead were returning in the winter, um, also well, starting in November, I mean, late to a week after Halloween. So the dead would return at different times in different, you know, different local cultures in the winter. And so this, uh, and they'd walk, they'd pass through, people would leave gifts, uh, offerings out for them. So it's, it was said that these uh, these house to house begging traditions, uh, the, the people were just was, as with Halloween uh, actually. Well, Halloween's a different whole different ball of wax, but in terms of its local like right. Celtic lore. Anyway, the, the, so these people were kind of understood to be uh, to represent the dead. It's this 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 understanding is kind of stronger in some areas than, than others. Uh, in Italy, there's uh, also like uh, there are. Uh, a certain town, there's a certain town that's famous for its uh, people that costume themselves in uh, uh, the clothing of a previous century and walk through and do and, and sing certain songs. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah, um, I, I can get you that. I don't have that town off the tip of my tongue right now, but uh, and then they would be given gifts. So that yeah. when the dead visit, they bless your house uh, because they're they're obviously uh, they're attached to the greater supernatural world and they have that ability. And you should leave them something something to eat too. So in the Alps, um, these were 
uh, you know, came to be called the Pershtun. And uh, Frau Pershta would sort of be the leader of this, of the wild hunt in that uh, region. They also call it, by the way, they also call it the, uh, the Furious Army. And that's a kind of an oddity of German word, Furious. <laughs> has a slightly different meaning. It means raging, kind of, or like so to imagine. The, the, the idea uh, is for either the hunt or the army. It's just one of like a, a, a motion and uh, sort of, like I said, this uh, force tearing through yeah. o- through the skies or over the land. So, but in the Alps, would, the Pershtun would be led by Frau Pershta. And so in the process of this site, this pagan idea of the returning dead didn't really fit with any of the church's theology. So um, they decided that it was actually a horde of demons rather than uh, <laughs> the returning dead, which that kind of, you know, that process of turning the dead to demons happens in other, in other folklore too, when, when things are heavily Christianized. So now maybe you're picking, getting, seeing how the, the Krampus and the Pashtun have start, start developing horns and looking more demonic uh, in the sort of Christian way of envisioning demons and the witch the witch connection would be because it was uh you know because uh Pershta was conceived as a lady um she became uh a, the sort of witch that led this horde of demons uh and in different regions uh, there was a Frau Holde was a, in northern Germany they had it was a, basically she was the Frau Pershta character so you had this whole transformation from from people having fun going door to door and uh you know get collecting treats and rewards yeah. to uh connecting with the, the mythology of the dead returning and then that mythology of the returning dead sort of being converted to uh hordes of, of demons that would sweep through the land so the perkton then grow out of that and from what you said is would you say is are the perkton really probably earlier than krampus and krampus is an outgrowth of the perkton oh yeah absolutely that, so okay. the, the rough rough chronology was uh frau Pershta as sort of a lady epiphany sort of a embodiment of the holiday that you it's a little hard to see how she was understood in some of the earliest writing but mm-hmm. that's like around 1100 those she starts being mentioned and then quickly thereafter, she's mentioned as alongside other uh, witches' names from classical mythology and Hulda from the north of Germany. So she, so she's by the 1200, she'd become become a witch. And the uh, the Pershtun themselves weren't really; they don't see them turning. They don't see that name in writing until fourteen or fifteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and people start talking about these this collective Pershtun. Um, and that usually, the, I think the first mentions of the Pershtun are uh, uh, related to these uh, people who are uh, guising, as the English would say, who are costuming and you know impersonating the uh, yeah. the, the Pershtun. So that's that's later. And then some of that actually is first mentioned. Not around, it's not even around Epiphany, but it's more uh, during the Carnival season, which is you know a few weeks later, and involves you know people dressing in costumes or, or always has. Yeah. And speaking of costumes, one of my favorite parts of your book is the Perkton chapter, because that's where you get the most variety of odd costumes. Yeah. Because even though, like you said, they start off looking a lot. In fact, there are some that could just be Krampus, uh, but the difference in variety just ramps up. Yeah, quickly. there there are. Well, the thing is, there are um, I should I, I, I want to go back in a moment, but let's I'll talk about the costumes. I want to go back and talk a little more about Frau Pershta's oh, okay. mythology. Yeah, but sure. um, so, yeah, the co- so there are good and bad uh, Pershta, supposedly this is there's some scholars that are questioning whether if this is a late development. And I, I tend to believe it is. I think in early, I think the, the Pershta were generally feared or they were 
kind of they would strike awe and have a numinous quality. And maybe they weren't good or evil, but because they mm -hmm. came from beyond, they had that sort of its own <laughs> feeling yeah, yeah. they might stir. Uh, but yeah, it, so uh, as far as how they would be visualized, and this is before any of the photos I have, some there. I think I might have a few illustrations in the book that were from the 1800s. The costumes would be real, really crude, and it would be like a burlap sack over your head, mm -hmm. and, and you know, so some pelts, or they turn, they turn the, uh, they turn the coats, the fur-lined coats, inside out. Black, blacking your face would also be, you know, we see that in mumming traditions mm -hmm. in England too. It's a way to disguise yourself with the, sin, you know, the ashes from the hearth, um, and then they would wear the bells because uh, the person being associated with uh, the, the dead and the earth. Um, have some connection to regeneration because uh, every year the, the you know the earth nature dies and springs back up so the bells are um, a tradition that's uh, uh, and all and other noise making traditions that are assigned to New Year's whether it's you know January uh, January 1st or <laughs> earlier um, the bells are, uh, there's also whipped cracking in the Alps it's a, a tradition that time of year and also firing off guns which we have you know other cultures will fire guns on New Year's oh, and yeah. all of these all of these noise making traditions are a way uh, I mean there can always be different interpretations but at least in one sense they're a way to rouse the earth to make sure it doesn't completely die in the dead <laughs> of winter because we're starting to look towards spring now as we move in towards the carnival season so the bells are a way to then again there's different there's different interpretations they are a way to drive off the bad other bad influences that are a way to rouse the earth but their noise making is definitely a part of the Pashtun tradition and that's how the the Krampus inherited those bells because that's like a sort of his vestigial tail in a way, because it doesn't have anything to do with his uh, <laughs> function with, you know, St. Nicholas and enforcing good and bad behavior. I mean, yeah. yes, they do add to his sort of uh, startling appearance because he comes storming in with a bunch of bells. that's going to stir the kids more, but they're definitely inherited from the noise making aspect of the, of the pierced. And so, so anyway, these costumes would start out really, you know, kind of, Different people would grab what they had handy. Bell you know, noise making would be a part of it, if you know mostly. But often, a lot of times, like you said, that could be whip cracking. That was, uh, and also uh, carrying torches because also uh, light is sort of another way to wake wake the earth or to uh, bring life back. Yeah, or represents life. Um, so, so the noise making, the torches, uh, the disguise, which could be you know have could involve fur, but didn't have to, and then more uh, this this. The, the period where they start to dis resemble demons is actually quite a bit later. Um, the other, uh, the good Pashtun, those really uh, only survived in um, a certain part of Austria, uh, a little bit south of Salzburg. There's a pass that would be used by uh, travelers from Southern Europe. And the costumes that were developed for the, the Schön Pashtun, that's the beautiful Pashtun versus the bad ones, mm -hmm. the ugly ones, they call them, um, Look like carnival costumes from Italy. Look, they have their beaded and covered with mirrors, and they're uh, in this area, the Gestein Valley. Uh, they have these uh, headdresses that could could be like six to eight feet tall. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole different look. So when you, when I say that the the the, the diversity of the, of, of the Pearson and how they look was uh, definitely uh, more prominent earlier before they all became Krampuses. Oh yeah, and then another there's another region where there's. Um, there's uh, some dancers that have uh, sort of uh, motley, uh, different colored uh, suits sewn with bells. And then they also had these uh, 
hats with these uh, long like rooster feathers on them. Yeah. So, th- so a lot of this stuff look like they look like carnival costumes. And I mentioned that they're dancers. Uh, if, the good Pershton, as well as the uh, the bad, well, the bad Pershton don't really do this. The good Pershton, as part of the sort of ritual blessing they bring to the house, um, they sometimes there's a certain dance that's performed. Um, and, and then also there are set. Uh, rhymed verses that can you know consider that just sort of a formalized blessing mm-hmm. and they can be sung or recited and sometimes there's also these troops would uh, uh perform even a, like a little very very short sort of play or an exchange of lines um in front of the houses and so there'd be some sort of programmatic aspect when they come to the house that they some some gift some performance that's offered that sort of confirms that their house has been blessed yeah. and then signals that the uh, homeowner should hand over uh, rolls or sausages or beer or whatever they're handing out, spiced wine. <laughs> it's also been theorized that the good Pershton evol- like, evolved later as a way to sort of tame these co- – so be, a lot of these uh, house visiting customs were – you know, they're all – they were done, done by teenage boys for the most yeah. part or mm-hmm. kid boys and their men in their 20s. But out, you know, at night, uh, being kind of troublesome <laughs> – and so just as the St. Nicholas figure was uh, added as a sort of chaperone to sort of civilize the tradition, um, what happened in, uh, at least in the Gestein Valley, where that's really famous for the, those towering, uh, beautiful person headdresses that are worn and the sort of the diversity. They have, they have a lot of other characters that seem very likely to have come from Italian um, carnival traditions, plays, oh, and fun. so forth. Yeah. So they, so, but they, the town sort of encouraged... Uh, the, re- the way these these headdresses got so large was, I, I this is a bit of a just so story I, should, I suppose too. But uh, the the town was encouraged. Um, they offered prizes uh, for the who was you know what tr- what troop or whoever had the best uh, costume so to speak uh, even or headdresses. Um, and they brought and they moved the Pershton run uh, the procession. I, it shouldn't really be called a run. The parade, let's say, uh, they moved it to the daytime versus the nighttime, that where you, all the mischief was occurring. So they kind of encouraged yeah. this other side, and the name. There's debate about whether these beautiful good person existed by that name before, and certainly that look was evolved in response to some some of the some of the mischief. And the funny thing is, um, in uh, you know uh, Philadelphia has a mummers parade every. Uh, new year that was it's definitely it's it grows from similar traditions uh it's not it's related more to english customs but they did the same thing where they they, they had some wild stuff going on in the streets of the city <laughs> or at the turn of the century in the 1800s uh people also were shooting off guns at new year and there was a uh, chaos and just uh everybody was drunk and so they they also started sponsoring a daytime parade to kind of channel that energy. And I think that's yeah. what happened in that in that village village in Austria. Well, I know too. You said in the book that you you said that's all that you pretty much knew about the Schönpersten uh, at the point. I was wondering if they if they've sort of discovered any other examples or since you wrote the book. No, there. Uh, that's it. That's the Schönpersten are only uh, really the the Gestein Valley, which is a number of city towns. I shouldn't call them villages, really, but. Uh, has the beautiful Pershton, and then there's an oh, I can't think of the town's name. The other the other one has the dancers with the rooster uh, rooster tail hats, yeah. and then beyond those, um, uh, you really didn't see the beautiful Pershton impersonated or uh, embodied with costumes 
you know, but it's not to say again that the the Persian were an, were ambivalent figures. They 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 could be good. Your house mm. was blessed by Persian, um, so it's not that they were all always considered evil. They were they were even in the folk mind or the pagan way of looking at things. Whatever the they could bring a blessing. They weren't they weren't necessarily infernal. But the idea of impersonating them with costumes that were beautiful seems to be kind of recent. Gotcha. It does. All of this does sound very familiar to like how fairy lore kind of develops too in different places where mm-hmm. you have a variety of images and names for the things. And, um, you know, the, the, the idea that they originally were neither good nor bad, but then over time sort of got labeled as things. Um, oh, I should, I, as I said earlier, I should go back to the, uh, Frau Perste mythology yeah. because that's the thing people like the most, I think. Um, so, so this uh, Frau Perste became after she had kind of been adjudged a witch by by around the twelve hundreds. Um, she definitely was in the folk mind. Uh, the, the you know the writing was all from theologians and historians, so didn't necessarily represent how the people thought of things. But yeah. Frau Perste was did you know was eventually conceived of as um, a witch. We. We know well. Actually, this has already happened by the 15th century because um, there uh, we had the this great uh, broadside, a sort of cheap printed thing that was uh, bought at carnival, uh, well, street fairs, I should say, not carnivals to confuse the topic. But uh, these uh, this broadside, uh, they you know, they'd sell these things with like uh, ballads. Uh, people could learn ballads, and so it was just there wasn't you know printing wasn't people weren't buying books, and so mm-hmm. but you could buy this kind of flyer. And there's this illustration of uh, <clears throat> Frau Perister that I think really represents how people uh, – it represents – it's a good representation of how she was thought of. She's definitely uh, depicted as a crone. And uh, I think it's from 14 – like 1462, I think, maybe. But um, she, So she's a crone. Her <laughs> She's well, sort of covered with warts, and she has a long uh, hooked nose uh, – in her back, she's wearing a basket with screaming children stuffed inside, <laughs> which should give you a hint about the Krampus, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, and that's, and again, this is back to the 15th century. So, let's see, she's also carrying um, a distaff. It's the uh, the st- uh, stick that you, when you're doing spinning, you're spinning uh, sort of the raw mm. fluff into fabric or linen or whatever. So, she has a, one of those uh, representing um, her connection to, to spinning. And so in terms of uh, Frau Perste as sort of a Krampus parallel, and again, this is something else a couple centuries later from when she's first mentioned, but she, in uh, Austria, Bavaria, she was uh, kind of, uh, uh, she had a sort of, uh, her, her domain was uh, young, uh, young women or girls and house, house workers, uh, servants. So people who would be doing the spinning in the house. So, she was particularly concerned that all spinning be completed by Epiphany Eve, uh, you because it had to be done on Epiphany. So the things she was things she was very very concerned about is the spinning, but also I guess that then that kind of broadened out where homes had to be prepared, they had to be clean and ready uh, for the the holy day, mm-hmm. and were if they were not, if you hadn't finished your spinning. Um, she was, that's where there was, uh, in, in the, uh, in the, in this broadsheet. And then a lot of other sources later would talk about her, the terrible things she would do. And of course, carrying bad, bad, uh, little girls, I should say those kids in the basket are all little girls. So 
uh, bad girls uh, and those who had failed to clean the house and have the spinning yeah, do the housework yeah. would be it would be would be gutted. They would uh, that was that was kind of her thing. She would uh, <laughs> she's also shown carrying a scythe sometimes. Um, so I think she I don't think, does she have a I don't think she has a scythe in that picture, but there are other uh, she's described that way elsewhere. <laughs> Um, so she, yeah, she'd got, she'd cut the, cut the, the woman or girl open, pull out the guts and replace it with straw. And then I guess she, cause she is just kind of a homemaker herself. She would sew them back up. Um, <laughs> so, so straw or rocks or snow, there's different, uh, different things. Uh, I think we she would do this sort of amateur taxidermy, but yeah, it's very specific. And then sometimes it would say she would, um, spin the, the intestines, into something oh, wow. or yeah it got it, it got it gets pretty gruesome yeah krampus seems tame by yeah, compared to absolutely, that absolutely yeah. yeah there's no there's no explicit gory uh stories about what krampus would do to kids it's always just sort of implied but this is very specific so another one that you mentioned are the sort of goat people or or sometimes mm-hmm. just goats i think and and the immediate question i have there is does that seem related to the scandinavian goat or is this just a, a different sort of local, I, local uh, thing? The, uh, yeah it's a good question i don't uh, i don't know that's like a that's actually a question for you have to have to look at you know the trade <laughs> what the trade trade roads were where you know who was interacting with whom and oh gotcha yeah there's um a habagais is a goat that's associated with uh it's kind of both with the uh, pers it's considered a per- kind of pers it's associated with um the, both the Krampus and the Pershton, but it is a kind of Pershton, supposedly. It's one of the, the Pershton runs or processions ended up including all of these figures. I mentioned the uh, the beautiful Pershton with the headdresses, mm-hmm. but um, there were characters costumed as, uh, there were people that rode little horses that would be, uh, these are, these definitely seem to be borrowed from uh, Italian carnival there, or some of these things you see with mummers in other countries too. There are guys who have, uh, they wear like a little miniature horse around their waist so they can pretend they're riding the little horse. Um, there's people, um, there's a, a character who's a, a sort of uh, a tonic salesman, the uh, people that would sell. So it's like a fake uh, sort of quack doctor as a character. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, they that's people coming through these Alpine villages would be, um, you know, you would they would have their, they think that a lot of these are parodies, uh, kind of local parodies of the people that would pass through. And like there are, uh, there's a gypsy bear trainer because those kinds of gypsies would pass through and use, make money by with trained bears, so there's guys in bear costumes. So there's all these sort of other kind of like this kind of whole cartoon of what life was. Again, sort of like you know the carnival parodies, the day to day life, and um, the goats. One of these just different kind of s- s- circus of characters that's included. Um, now the Habergeist has its own mythology. It's so the costumed version. It's portrayed by a, a, a guy <laughs> with a. Uh, long pole for some reason these goats necks are always very long i don't know why <laughs> but then it has a mechanism it has a clacking a uh, head carved wooden head with horn goat horns and then it has a little clacking jaw that you can be controlled from you know the string attached uh, running along mm-hmm. the pole and there's a lot of these characters i'm actually just studying up, up on um i'm going to be going to romania uh, over christmas and they have they definitely oh, have the same idea with the goat in england they have the uh Hoodening tradition, the hood, that's it's named that because the guy hiding under the sort of hood with a wooden horse or goat head. Yeah, and they the, definitely have these in northern Germany. Um, and um, 
associated with Christmas as in Scandinavia. So and I think so, in, in Italy, you see it too. I think this idea of an animal with a clack, you know, fake animal, it's like a kid dressing up as a pretending to be a horse when you're under a blanket or something. But I think this mm-hmm. idea is kind of part of it. I think it's just like, it's a good gag that works. So it's kind of like, how do we do this costume? But um, the, there is a mythology of a habageist. Now the thing is, it's considered a goat, but then there are other stories where it's some kind of half goat, half half bird. So again, this is in the realm of storytelling where it changes shape. It doesn't, you know, in folk tales, things aren't quite as nailed down as they might be oh, in sure, Wikipedia sure. or or a, a video game where you yeah. know your characters always have rules. So the Habegeist is considered a good. It's um, it's is a it can be it's like because it's a parist, I guess it's can be a good luck uh, bringer, so, uh, but it can also uh, portend bad things. Um, so Habergeist could even appear at a wedding uh, to offer a blessing on the couple. Oh, that's cool. Uh, mean, meaning one of these, you know, guys with a, a, a cloak or a hood or a blanket yeah. and the, the clacking jaws. But, you know, it's just also, it's just a fun thing because these, uh, the person in the Gestein area will run around in the crowd and they interact with the crowd. It is, it is like a circus coming to town. It's a, all the characters are comic. I mean, even, you know, even the, just like the Krampus is actually kind of a comic character too. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's definitely there's a feeling of uh, the circus coming to town and people making some sort of entertainment for themselves in in the in the dead of winter, and that you know and that all like is that the same thing as the mythology or is it just people having fun? So there's you know there's always all those questions kind of come up when you look at all the lot of these things. I like how that mixes up some of both. I mean, they because you really yeah. have yeah the folklore and the the some of the legends that seem tied to you know possible explanations and whatnot. But at the same time, they're clowns. Yeah, I mean, in Gestein, like you said, it's like a carnival with a whole. There's probably it's probably like 15, 12, 15 different kinds of characters. There's a hunter that pretends to shoot the audience with his gun. <laughs> um, it's you know, uh, there's a harlequin kind of character or a definitely a clown kind of like a but a bizazzo i think what's the italian it's hasn't even has an italian name but uh well that's what i was going to say a lot of those things i mean you mentioned carnival but like i don't i don't know if commedia dell'arte is really we're going back before then but i know how a lot of really no no this is exactly that's exactly uh where it it, there's definitely a connection there yeah, yeah and could be how the you know ideas of that translated and get further away from the cities and they just kind of take yeah, on that, the life that, of their own that yeah. form that you i mean the comedia dell'arte is definitely because it's kind of half half improvised half so you have some traditional stuff mm-hmm. that you're working off of and because it interacts with the crowd yeah so that's uh that's a very good description of these these kinds of traditions it is because a lot of it they have their set figures they have their set you know some set lines they say and then it's kind of have fun with it yeah. and you see the same thing when things when the when the person would come door to door and maybe they have a handful of lines and they just kind of clown around and go in the house and cause some mischief and <laughs> yeah yeah the closest thing i've ever think i was at a i took my kid to a santa claus thing one time and they had a whole bunch of people playing his elves but mm-hmm. they all had kind of their own character they like like I, I mentioned clowns before but they really were like clowns but dressed up as elves and they were yeah. running around doing their thing and i remember thinking i'm like oh this is probably what it's what the person stuff was like yeah it'd be a yeah, cool absolutely. thing to be able to to do here and just you know, <laughs> give you something to do while you're waiting in line to take your picture with santa at least <laughs> well, I, I, I i imagine i hope mate you understand now why i said i don't know what the person are yeah <laughs> yeah through all this variety i i probably you come out I feel like I leave people coming out 
a little confused but kind of dazzled by the by it. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's uh, what I know about. No, I think that's accurate. I mean, I was I was really fascinated by you call it fairy lore or whatever, but just like how those sort of legends of small creatures all over Europe and yeah. and England and they, you know, it's everything from goblins, ugly little things to, you know, Victorian looking fairies to the whole kinds of thing. And they all sort of share a certain family resemblances, but there is yes, no family one... resemblance. Definitely a good way to put it. Yeah. Not never point for point. Like, you know, there's like, you think they might, but yeah. Right. And that's because like you said, that's they're they're growing up different areas, different legends, nothing's really written down. So nothing gets, can get seen as official. Yeah. And, and the, individual storyteller i mean he brings different things into the stories too yeah absolutely maybe people need to bring back periton in their own town <laughs> do their own do their own periton thing <laughs> i'm going to invite myself to uh talk to you all about uh romanian christmas traditions perhaps uh, in future after i go there this year i would yeah, love they have that. uh they have a costume bear tradition they have the goat same the same goat and then just a myriad of other other kind of uh, where the people wear different traditional costumes and that's awesome i'm really looking forward to it there are people that crack whips again there are people that wear bells then sheepskin masks it's uh i uh made the mistake of comparing them to the krampus to some romanian i was talking to and he didn't want to have any part of that it was, <laughs> it's their own thing so that's wonderful <laughs> people you always look at your analogies in, in in all the things I've read, there's less sort of Eastern European. Like there's a fair bit I can find out about Russian things and Russian well, legends. Well, it's not but translated. Once, yeah, that's yeah. I was going to say yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to end up having to translate a lot of stuff just on my own because you're not finding too much writing in, in English. And what you find is this derivative. It's you know one source repeated, and maybe somebody's added, and maybe they haven't. So are you going specifically to look at winter traditions? Well, yeah. I mean. Um, you know, uh, what I can see in COVID is going to interfere with things a little more. Perhaps they're having not a great time over there with that. So, but whatever is going on, I'm going to an extremely uh, traditional area in the north of, it's, sometimes it's part of Transylvania, sometimes it's not, but it's mm -hmm. Maramos, which is uh, known for being, I went, I've been to Romania once before and it, it definitely feels like you're in the 1800s. I remember seeing ox carts and, you know, people <laughs> still wear traditional, certainly on holiday, they're going to wear traditional clothes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I, uh, I've already gathered a lot of information, so we'll see what I can actually see in person. <laughs> That's great. No, I would love to talk about that. Even if you wanted to do it while it's still fresh sometime in January or February or whenever. I'd be happy to, if you could find an actual Romanian to talk about, I would beg you to use them instead. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that'll be the trick. I'm trying to learn a little Romanian as we go along here. <laughs> That's fun. Well, thanks again for talking to me. And it's always fun to go through some of this. Um, I say always for the second time we've gotten to talk, <laughs> but I appreciate it. And I, I have to have people go check out Bone and Sickle. Uh, your podcast, which is all about folklore and um, yeah, the darker side of folklore, sure, I guess. Yeah. And one one thing that I think you hadn't put out yet was actually an episode on the Wild Hunt last year. And um, when we spoke, oh, right. I no, don't remember. It hadn't come out yet when we when we talked, but um, it's up there in December from yeah. last year, and it's really interesting and goes into even more detail about. Thanks, you know, and there is a. There is a, a Pearson episode and there's a Krampus episode. I'm doing them kind of as the season approaches as we're in our third year now. So yeah, you can find those on the oneandsickle.com. Well, thank you again. And I appreciate it. And yeah, I'm definitely going to follow up on Romania and learn a little more about yeah, Eastern okay. Europe. 
Awesome. Well, thank thank you for having me. It's good to talk to the. I mean, I, I do like. I know that this audience is pretty up on stuff, so it's nice to talk at a little higher level. <laughs> yeah, or at least people who are who are into the details and don't have to be convinced that it's there's just Santa. Yeah, or and definitely. I mean, and interested too. <laughs> definitely. Again, please go check out Al's Bone and Sickle podcast if you haven't already. The Christmas episodes, they're easy to find, and I'll put a link on the show notes. But the other non-holiday stuff is just as fascinating. It all follows the same tack of looking at the history and folklore of recognizable monsters and ghosts and creepy horror stuff. But it's really cool to come away seeing how what we think of as like horror genre icons, even like Krampus, are weaved through all sorts of areas of culture you might not expect. Just really great show. So... I'm still plugging away on making the Flash Fiction Contest decisions, so if you haven't heard from me yet, you will soon. I promise. The final choices are always the hardest, and I'm a natural procrastinator, so it is what it is. But if I'm not feverishly working on getting it done at this particular moment, you can be absolutely sure that I am actively feverishly worrying about it. Lots more shoes to come before Christmas and New Year, so watch your podcast apps. And as always, if you're feeling particularly generous this time of year and you like the show, please consider helping cover the costs of hosting and funding the contest prizes. You can donate in $3 increments at ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. That's the price of a cup of coffee. Ko-fi, get it? ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. Thank you to the last few anonymous folk who donated on there. I would thank you each personally, but I can't. And I also have an account on Patreon. So if you're one of my patrons there, time to watch your mailbox. That special gift I promised everyone is in the mail. A friend of mine who goes by Nudis Magrudis has put together a set of professionally printed mailable versions of some of the most popular weird postcards out there, along with a few other goodies like special envelopes and stickers, and those are on their way. In fact, I should put some pictures of those up for everyone outside of Patreon to see. But if you'd like to help out a bit more, patreon.com slash weirdchristmas. As always, I would show you my appreciation in socially unacceptable ways where we physically close, but alas. Now I'm off to edit the next episode, so I can't say stay tuned. Like, we need a different cliche for something like that. Stay streamed, and then work, subscribe logged in, I don't know. But what I do know is that until next time, please, you should not let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack.